listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So uh, last week uh, we were working through Romans 5, and there was a portion in Romans 5 where, uh, where Brad talked about, uh, for just as sin has entered through one man, Adam, that righteousness and salvation has been found in one man, Jesus Christ. And he talked about the fact that all peoples were brought under that banner of mankind. The one man, Adam, all of our humanity, and for those of us who are in Christ, every one of us are represented by our head, Jesus Christ. And seeing that I had an opportunity to kind of do a standout, a, break, a breakout kind of psalm sermon, I really wanted to look Look at that and look at Psalm 67 as sort of an auger that's going to drill down deep into God's perspective on the gospel-centered life to all peoples and all nations for all time. And to be honest with you, this, is, this has really been something that the Holy Spirit has put on my heart for a couple of months now. And, and so I, I consider this a huge privilege. Uh, it's always a privilege to be able to, to speak to you guys, but it's really unique in our context for the senior pastor to be here and for the JV guy to preach. And so, Brad, I've told you this before, that's unusual and it's, it's a huge blessing and it's just one of the ways that, um, that Brad is displaying to the congregation that he has a heart um, for the congregation and for young men, just like our last midweek fellowship. This is, this is rare in, in streams of Christianity, but it's something that Brad does really, really well and I appreciate that. Um, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to look at Psalms. Hopefully you're in Psalm 67 now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open up your word, as we, as we come into this place, as we have sung your praises, I pray that our heart would be attuned by the power of your Holy Spirit, whether we are one of your children or somebody who has walked into this place not knowing who Jesus is in a salvific way. I pray that we would see who you are. And in seeing who you are, we would recognize that you have for all times and to all peoples laid out a call that any who would repent and trust in you, any who would lay down their sins and put their trust in Christ, anyone who would put down their own desires, their own comforts, and whatever it is that we would heap up selfishly for ourselves in this life, if instead we would look to the cross and see the sacrifice there, that we would see this one point in history that everything else is defined by, that defines every culture and tribe and nation and demographic. And Father, would, would you draw us into this truth, but then would you not leave us there? Would we, would we be expelled from this place with joy in our hearts, recognizing that you have called all peoples to yourself and the manner and the method by which you have done that is your church and your people. And so Father, I pray that, that you would do that for us this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so Psalm 67, everybody make sure you're there. But uh, let, let me just say this. When we read Psalms, we need to read them a little bit differently uh, than we read other types of Scripture. Um, right now we're working through Romans, and in working through Romans, it's a very linear argument type of a thing. Paul is laying out because of this, this, and this, then this, and because of that, then this, and because of who God is here, who God is here, this is who we are to be there. And there is this very obvious logical linear argument that makes sense to our Western culture and our Western sensibilities. The Psalms are more like art. Now, 
that doesn't mean that they're not as valuable. That doesn't mean that they don't tell us anything about God, but it does mean that they do it in a very different way. It, it would be much wiser to think about working through psalms or a psalm as looking at a canvas or looking at a piece of art. Nobody walks up in a museum to a piece of art and begins at the top left corner and then just begins scanning and working down to accept what art they're looking at. They look at it at a, as a whole long before, I don't know, art at all. But long before they start analyzing brushstrokes or impressionism or anything like that. And that's really how you have to take the Psalms. You, you, you can't just kind of, it's fine to work through it. Don't get me wrong. There's tons of theological truth that you can pull out line by line. But if you really want to appreciate it the way that it was written to be appreciated, you need to see it all in one whole as much as you possibly can. It's, it's sort of like the opposite. Y'all remember the old laser copiers where... They would go, eh, 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 eh. that's how we read scripture a lot of times. And it had the accordion paper with like the little tear off tat. You had to fold it so they didn't tear before you turned it into your professor. Like that's the way that we typically work through scripture. But when we come to the Psalms, we want to see it as our Athanasius, this very old guy, as you can tell by his name, put it this way. Most of scripture speaks to us. The Psalms speak for us. And so it really does. When we work through the Psalms, it's not just speaking to us. It is actually declaring what our heart should be declaring or do declare at any given point in time, which is why we can find the rawest of human emotion in the book of Psalms. We, uh, my, my sister got married, I don't know, maybe nine months ago now in Norway. And so we went over to Norway to check it out. And while we were over there for her wedding, we had the opportunity we had the opportunity, I just found a great place for my knee, I don't even need that anymore. Um, we had the opportunity because the tickets were so inexpensive to go to London, right? Like apparently in Europe, it's a whole lot cheaper to travel once you get there. And so we wanted to go to London and check, you know, all this stuff out and get on, you know, the big eye and hey kids, Big Ben and Parliament and all that kind of stuff. And so while we're doing that, um, we're learning about art and culture of which I don't, I don't know that much. But I do know this, we stayed at a place called Charing Cross. Has anybody ever heard of Charing Cross before? A couple of you have. If you know anything about art, Monet, who was an Impressionist uh, painter, he spent about five years in this hotel that's now called the Savoy. And you can go and pay like a ridiculous amount of money and stay in the room they think he stayed in and looked at the Charing Cross Bridge and painted it. But what was unique about Monet was he would go to the same place at different times and seasons and different lights. And the Charing Cross Bridge was one of those. I was two blocks, didn't even know it. I was two blocks away from Monet's position as he's painting Charing Cross. And what I want you to realize is if we need to look at Psalm 67 as a piece of art, Psalm 65 and 66 and 67 make this collection of art that is displaying a greater truth of who God is. So, I've been artistic enough. Let's go right now to Psalm chapter 65. Uh, I'm not going to read all of 65 and 66. That wouldn't be the best use of our time together, but I do want to highlight a few verses. And before I do, I want to ask you a question. I want to give you a moment to think about what your answer would be, and that is this. For whom did God open the Red Sea? When you think about your Old Testament history and the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt, for whom did God open the Red Sea? And I, I just want you to think. shouldn't take you very long. For, you don't have to answer. I'd hate for you to be wrong in front of all these people. For whom did God open the Red Sea? All right, Psalm 65, verse 2, verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. 
O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. When you look at verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. One of the first brushstrokes in this collection of paintings that God has given us in this collection of psalms, one of the first colors that he uses that is placed in the background is this, all flesh, all people, anyone who falls under the banner of mankind, that is who God has a heart to redeem. To you shall all people come. And as much as we treat life like a high school cafeteria, and we separate ourselves off by this group and that group and this group and that group, the only way that God puts a dividing line between humanity is those who are still in their iniquity and their sin and those who are redeemed from their iniquity and their sin. There is only one separation in the cafeteria of the cosmos. And that is, do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior or do I not? Do I recognize my sin and go to him for the repentance of that sin? Or do I live in my sin and try to convince myself that I'm good enough? There are only two tables in the cosmos that when you walk out with your tray and you do the... You only had two options. And all people will be brought to him. Now let's jump over to chapter 66. So if in 65 we recognize that all people will come, in 66 we're going to add something to that. So now more color is being brought to the page, more to the canvas. More detail is being poured out. And here's what we read, Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you. These are similar brushstrokes, but hold on. And sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Verse 5. Come and see what God has done. So if in the beginning of the painting, if in collection number, uh, painting number one, we have these colors laid out that all people will be brought in. Now as the collection develops, now as more brushstrokes and color and detail are added, we realize that not only are all peoples going to come, but they are going to come by seeing and beholding who God is. Look back at verse five. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Notice, this psalmist does not say to Israel. He doesn't say to his people. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man, toward all mankind. And then he uses this as a proof. Verse 6. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So God is going to call all people, the more brush strokes and more ink is added to it. And now all of a sudden the picture is becoming clear. And not only are all people coming, but all people are coming to see, to come and see who God is. And the psalmist says, for the good of all mankind, look at what God has done in the Red Sea. Now this would obviously make a lot of sense to the Israelites, but it would make sense to anyone in the culture around them who has heard this story, who has heard of a God who opened up a sea so that his people could walk through. And what the psalmist is saying is God did not open the Red Sea for the Israelites. He opened the Red Sea for his glory to be displayed to all people by his love for those who are his children. You see that? 
And, and, and what happens is it allows us to see in much bigger perspective what it is that God has actually always been doing. And so now they just start pointing to stuff. Check out verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, right? So all the, bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Verse 9. So now let me tell you, come and see. Come and look at my awesome God. Let me show you his awesome deeds, who has kept our soul among the living. He's not let our feet slip. Do you see it? For you, O God, have tested us. You've tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Why would someone be bragging about this? Why would you say, come and see how difficult the Lord has made life on me? Is that really how we expect to win people to him? But the point in this is not that God has wronged them, but that they had actually wronged God. And in his loving discipline, he has done these things. It gets really like hardcore R-rated now. Verse 12, you let men ride over our heads. Whoever they're thinking about wasn't right in that line. He goes on. We went through fire and through water. Come and see. Yet you have brought us to a place of abundance. Come and see. Verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. Doesn't matter what your culture, race, ethnicity, economic level, political. Come all you who fear God. And I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity, that means sin, in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. When we walk into the lunchroom of the cosmos, it is not a racial issue. It is not a political issue. It is not an economic issue. It is a heart issue that causes us to decide to turn to the left or to the right. And praise be to God that he changes hearts. Verse 19, but truly God has listened. He's attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer. So if in Psalm 65 we have this, all people will come, then in Psalm 67 we have all people will come and see. And now we look at verse 60, uh, chapter 67. I'm just going to read the first verse. May God be gracious, or second, first and second. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. So in this collection of art, as more, as more brush strokes are added on by the psalmist, in 65 we see that all people will come, in 66 we see all people will come and see, and now in 67 it culminates and it wraps up the collection, and it says all people will come and see why God saves. That's cool. If you know what to look for, it's really amazing. Why God saves. For whom did God open the Red Sea? He opened it for his glory to all peoples expressed through those who love him. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. If you're a note taker, I've only got two sections for you. This is going to be the first. When we think about why God saves, we need to be careful that we don't just answer with verse one. God saves because he loves me. Or even worse, God saves because I am awesome. If you knew how good of a player I was on God's team, you would not be asking why God saved. 
All right? But, but if that's all we do is look at verse 1, and let's be honest, that may not be what we think here, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not how we live here. There's a whole lot of us in verse 1 and a whole lot of him in verse 2. Do you see? Do you see that? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That's a pretty egocentric start to a verse. If it doesn't end by saying that your name would be great. That you would be made known to all the nations. So why does God save? God saves that his glory would be displayed to his people, through his people, and in his people for all time. Let me tell you why I broke it up this way. God saves that his glory would be displayed to his people. When the Red Sea was opened or anything, if you go back to Psalm 66, it just spends like half the chapter talking about rain and how like they dug these deep furrows and God had watered it so much that water's like brimming over. And God, say, God saves that his glory would be displayed to his people. This is salvation. Do you see my glory? Do you see who I am? Do you see my majesty? Do you see my greatness? And do you see my sin? It is on display to you that you would respond in salvation. God saves that his glory would be displayed to his people salvation. Secondarily, he saves that his glory would be displayed through his people. Notice that now there is this expectation that through those whom God has saved, the message that drew them in is now the message that they take out. They don't just see him and behold him and respond. They then take that message out to the nations. This is our sanctification. God saves us for the sake of salvation and the glory he gets in that. He saves us for the sake of our sanctification, becoming more like him and carrying this message out. He saves us so that he would be displayed through his people. But then finally, he saves that his glory would be displayed in his people for all time because there will be a day when there will be no more storms and there will be no more death and there will be no more flooding and there will be no more cancer and there will be no more cheating or affairs or broken families or divorce and cancer. All of these things will be gone and what will be left will be God's people in his glory for all time and that's amazing. And so when God saves, sometimes we never really graduate from being the 12-year-old at a summer camp that thinks God saves because he, he needed to save me. He loved me, yes. But he loved you that his love would be displayed through you to others. And then he loved you that, your, that his love would be displayed through you to others so that for all time when you in glory stand before his throne, there is not a clock ticking and for all time his glory is manifest in you. That's insane. That's insane. When we sing songs about how broken we are and how our iniquities fill the earth, that we would be the trophies that God puts in his trophy case? The, the one who can create all things, much prettier, much holier, more, much more pure than us. And yet he receives glory by taking something that is inevitably trash and cleanses it through the blood of Christ so that it is on display, not just in its own shining glory, but displaying the cleansing power of the blood of Christ that can do something like that. That's why we shouldn't read Psalms linearly. You have to know what to look for. We, we moved out uh, into the country a few years ago, and 
There's no way not to raise your kids as city kids if they live in the city. You know, when, when your kid is falling asleep and you're trying to get them to sleep through some dude in a Civic with Flowmasters that just loves running up and down your street, that's a very different way that you train your child than when you're living out in the woods. And so when we moved out there, I knew that my kids did not have eyes to see what they needed to be able to see in the woods. We, uh, right before we started building, there were, um, there were two five-foot rattlesnakes mating, like 10 feet, right? I was like, seriously, not only did I see you, but I know you're making more, right? Like, <laughs> do you have to flaunt it? And so, I mean, these, like, these, were, these were man killers. And I've got like a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old just like toddling around. And I'm like, this is going to be a problem, and so I knew that my kids did not have eyes to see what was true and what was real. And there's a whole lot of beautiful imagery about our enemy, like disguising and concealing himself because he desires to destroy us in that. That's not really my context, though, today. And so what I did is I, I, I took a $5 bill to the dollar store, and I bought all the rubber snakes I could for $5. And I tried to not get, like, the hot pink ones. I tried to get, like, the green ones and the black ones. And I... I, I, went, I went home, and I, maybe we sat down to lunch, and the snakes were on the table, and I started explaining to the boys, okay, so here's the deal. You love being out here, and you love being out here naked and with no shoes. I'm not going to win that battle, so this is the one I'm shooting for, okay? <laughs> These are snakes. They want to kill you, okay? That is their desire. They want to bite you. So here is what we do, and I gave them step one, two, and three. When I see a snake, here's what I do. I don't pick up a stick, I don't pick up a rock, and I sure don't poke it. I look at where I am, I look at what I'm near so I can help daddy get back here, and then I make sure all my brothers, at that time there was no sister, run with me to the house, and we say, daddy, we saw a snake. And then daddy gets a shovel or a shotgun, and he comes out, and we kill the snake, and it's awesome. <laughs> and so then for weeks, while they were just playing, Without telling them what I was doing, I would hide these rubber snakes. And I would just sit out there and hang out with them playing to test them to see if they knew what to look for. And sure enough, kids are trainable. Sure enough, they see this snake and they get all excited and they know what to do. They see the snake. Hey, everybody back up. You know, like they, they turn into like little adults in that moment because they know it. They're, whoa, everybody back up. We've got a snake here. Thad, Ames, let's just take a step back. All right, we're going to walk, and we're going to go tell dad. They go and tell me. I go ahead and get my shotgun. I go ahead and get my shovel, and we act it out. And they're cheering, and it's just the best time ever. I had to do that because they didn't know what to look for. Many times when we come to God's word, especially the Old Testament, but even in Psalms, like hopefully in working through Psalms and seeing it in that way with these brushstrokes unfolding chapter after chapter, there's a piece of you that says, I've been a Christian a long time, but maybe there's some stuff that I can still learn about how to read Scripture and grow deeper in my understanding of it, right? That's a weird way to enunciate understanding, all right? Maybe there's something still for me. Maybe I'm not out of the sandbox yet. Maybe I still need God to put a couple rubber snakes in my way so that I can run to my dad and he can enjoy encouraging me and knowing what to look for when it comes to his word. Everybody go to Luke chapter 2. There was a man who knew exactly what to look for in Luke chapter 2. And his name was Simeon. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verse 22. 
and I want to, I want to show you what, what I'm doing. I'm not, I don't just want to do it. I want you to see this. We're going to go to the New Testament, the presence of Christ, back to Psalm 67, back to the depth of the Old Testament, because I want you to know what to look for, and I want you to see who God is. I want you to see not just why he saves, but that why he saves is inevitably, inseparably, whatever that is, indivisibly tucked into who he is. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him being Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the coming, waiting for the next step, waiting for, for, for the coming of the king. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Remember, all people will come and see. He will not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. This would be the temple complex, not into the sanctuary. This is important. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he, you just have to see this. Like, allow yourself to be there. There's an old man who has basically lived at church because he knows that God is bringing something new and exciting. The Holy Spirit has told him, you will not depart to come and be with me until you see this thing. He's looking. He's trained. He knows what he's looking for. And, and I don't know how to explain it, but there is something about the age of a believer that the older you are typically, the more you are clinging to heaven and the more you are releasing of this world. I, I think it is a natural grace that God has given us and it's something that I, I notice in my grandmother all the time. It is not that she hates life. It is not that she is bitter with me or with anyone else. It is simply that she cannot wait. She longs to be with her Lord in a way that I in my mid-30s cannot fully appreciate. Verse 27, and he came in the spirit into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, this old aged, wrinkly worn, white haired if he had any man, took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation." That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus was not brought into the inner side of the sanctuary where no one could see him. He was brought into the temple complex where he would have been visible. And in that place where visible to all, Simeon takes him up in his hands and says, I have seen your salvation. And when I see your salvation, I recognize that you prepared this in the presence of all peoples. And that it is to be, verse 32, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, those who are not a part of you, and glory to your people Israel. The light bulb of salvation that is Jesus Christ is at least a 
dual purpose bulb. In one hand, it draws in like a moth to its glorious basking light those who have not responded to it. And simultaneously at the same time displays the glory of the light that is Jesus Christ held by all who have already responded to it. Now we jump back. Psalm 67. So we see this. Knowing what to look for, let's read Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. You want to see how it's not linear? Verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Just mixed in on this canvas is the praising of God. But then one specific verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Why? For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Praise him, praise him. Give me a different brush, give me a different color because he judges the world rightly, because he knows what is coming, because he is sovereign and bringing all things to bear. Now, give me another brush, give me another color. Verse 6 The earth has yielded its increase. Now, I'm looking back to this one time that I remember when God was faithful to me, he was faithful to us. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And before we move from here, just notice this. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Verse 7, God shall bless us. The entire piece of art is not a question, oh no, is he going to do this? It is a display that without a shadow of a doubt, God is going to save all types of people from all nation and tribe and tongue. It's not a question. It's an answer. But you have to be able to look at it as a whole. We can know why God saves only by knowing who God is. I've never done this, and it is not advocated in public speaking. So I'm just going to ask you to gear up for five minutes because I think this might be the most informative five minutes of my time with you. For whatever reason, whether it's teenagers, young adults, married, foe, it doesn't matter. There is this perception both of non-believers and believers, that somehow the God of the Old Testament is evil and vindictive and angry. And that when Jesus finally shows up onto the scene, he takes a deep breath and is no longer crotchety and angry, but God has finally cheered up a little bit. And I don't know why it is that we as Christians are okay with this perspective of our God, even from unbelievers. It doesn't make sense But the problem is, we are probably, as a people, very ill-informed on who God is. Which is why we get to the question of why God saves. Our answer is so often egocentric. Because we don't know who God is to actually know why he saves. I've practiced this. I can do it in five minutes. What I would like for you to do is turn to page one in your Bible, also known as the Table of Contents. And I would like to preach to you from the Table of Contents for five minutes... In shotgun fashion, if Josiah can keep up, you're smiling. Is that a smile of confidence or not? It's confidence. They will also appear behind you. There is no way I can give you the context of this. 
You are going to get distracted. You are going to get frustrated and you are going to need to take a breath. But I think I can do this in five minutes. And I bet it will inform you on who God is, has always been, and always will be with a heart toward the nations and toward people. And then we'll close by talking about what this should mean for us. Genesis. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Exodus, before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Notice, don't lose what I'm trying to show you. This is God putting on display who he is, not for his people, but for all all peoples that they would know who he is and be drawn. Leviticus, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Numbers, now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land. Deuteronomy, dropping down to six, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Joshua, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Judges, this one's a little harder. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying my, my own hand has saved me. He is telling Gideon that the reason I'm saving you is not just to save you, it's so that all the nations will know that I have saved you and I am the only way to find salvation, Ruth. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be your, my people. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. First Samuel, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Second Samuel, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. First Kings, that all the peoples of the earth may know Know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Second Kings. So now, O Lord our, our God, save us, please, from his hand. They're talking about Sennacherib. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. First Chronicles. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Second Chronicles. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house. This is a stranger praying to God. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Ezra, for the priests and the Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the return to exiles. So those would have been God's people for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the people of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, Nehemiah. So the wall was finished and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Do you see this? It doesn't matter where you go, it's there. All people for all time will be called to one God because he is their only hope. Let each one draw up in you this incredible understanding of who God is so that you know why God saves. 
Where did I stop? Nehemiah. Esther. And in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. A feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. For the fear of Jews had fallen on them. Job, he makes nations great. And he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Psalms, I think we've covered that. Proverbs. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Ecclesiastes, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. Song of Solomon, I'm going to skip. They're on their honeymoon. We're going to have to keep that door closed. Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to, you just don't open some doors, okay? That's one. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and, <clears throat> and the bottom and all the nations shall flow to it. Jeremiah, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth. Therefore, behold, I will make them known this once. I will make them know my power and my might and they shall know my name is the Lord. Lamentations. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? Outsiders looking at the nation of God expecting what God would do because of who he is and how he is known, Ezekiel. And my holy name will be known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel, Daniel. I saw... I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Hosea, my God will reject him because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. My people will be wanderers due to my discipline so that other nations will see who I am. Similar thing in Joel. The ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage your reproach, a byword among the nations. Why? Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Amos, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, drop down. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Obadiah, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Micah, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. We're almost there. Little bitty prophets now. Nahum, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Habakkuk, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Zephaniah, the Lord will be awesome against them for he will famish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. Zephaniah, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Haggai, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Zechariah, this is my favorite one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going, come with me. To see this God that we have heard about. This God that we are being shown through his people. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days. Ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew. They'll take hold of one who knows God. Saying let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. That's a day that's coming. 
we're so nervous to talk about our king and our king is promising that there's a day coming where you're not going to have enough threads for people to hold on to as you walk to church to drag them. Because they say, hey, you know God. I know you know God. I've got to go with you. Malachi, what a beautiful ending. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That, excluding the Song of Solomon, they were busy. That is the entire Old Testament. Showing you that the Old Testament displays a God who loves all peoples. All peoples. Let me close. Do you know what you're looking for? A lot of times we we talk about people coming in and hearing the gospel. And that's the most important message that we can give. But if we give a gospel message of a God that is skewed, if we read verse 1 of Psalm 67, then it's not like some cute cartoony green screen half God. It is a warped, distorted, grotesque God. If we do not recognize that God saves so that his glory would be known to the nations through you. 1 John 2 says this. Do you know him? Verse 4. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What do we do with this? We stare at how God has loved us in Christ and we walk in like manner. There are four ways that I came up for us to do this. And the best way is to not look at what we're necessarily good at or smart at or strong at. Because the whole point is we love to come up with different categories for us to sit in. And God has one. When we think of how God loved us, it shows us how we should love others. Number one, God loved us through humility. Consider how Christ came. No matter how great the chasm is between you and another person, young, old, black, white, Democrat, Republican, rich, poor, smart, dumb, male, female, whatever it is, fast, slow, I don't care. Whatever it is, and the reason I don't just leave it in the big political, economical, racial things is because that's not the only way that we separate ourselves. We don't just separate, Karen was like, why don't you just say education and not smart and dumb? Because people don't just separate themselves by education. Are you in the AP class? I am, so I'm going to hang out with these people. Like, all we do as sinful, carnal people is run around trying to find people like us that act like us and talk like us and eat like us and live like us so that we can be comforted that we are doing it just the way we ought to be doing it. And God's call is, if I'm a God for all nations and all peoples, you better be a person for all peoples and all nations. And that is constantly going to like rub abrasively against who you are comfortable being. And that's a wonderful thing, because guess what? You're on this side of heaven. You don't need to be comfortable yet. You're not like Jesus yet. You're not perfected yet. You've got all sorts of little lunchroom jacked upness in you that the Holy Spirit wants to shave off. And when all you do is hang around people who look like you and act like you and talk like you, you are actually running from what God would call you to be. And that is, that is only displayed perfectly in Christ. 
Whatever separation you think you have with some other person, it is not nearly as great as the separation from Christ to you. I promise you that. Matthew 11, or excuse me, 28. Oh no, Matthew 11. Here is how Jesus dealt with it. He didn't care if you were young or old or anything else. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not come to me if you're this or come to me if you're that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It doesn't matter who you are. The gospel is for you. It doesn't matter what your background is. The gospel is for you. It doesn't matter your sin history. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how great you think you are or how horrible you think you are. The gospel is for you. Is there anyone or any peoples that you have considered too different, off limits, below you, or too far gone to be saved? And too far gone to be saved could just be someone that you love, that you've been praying for, and have officially written off in your prayers is not happening. I, I feel like I can't preach this without it sounding like it's a racial thing. And I'm not saying that there aren't racial contexts here, but we've got to be able to look at the whole. We're not ready to deal with that stuff yet. We don't love people who are different than us, who eat different than us. Number two, God loved us without expecting recompense, expecting nothing in return. When Jesus was following the will of the Father, he was surrounded by ignorance. The Bible tells us that at his ascension, some doubted. You thought about that? People are hanging around, all these miracles, fish like being torn up, right? Like all, the, all these folks are getting fed. Jesus dies, comes back from the dead, walks around and eats with them and does more miracles, starts floating up into the clouds, and there's some people going, I don't know. God loves us without expecting any, anything in return. How could he have expected something in return? We're dead. What sense does it make for you to walk in uh, to, to a viewing at a funeral and say, you know, that person never made that right with me. And then just stand at the corpse waiting. Why, why should we expect a dead person to give us something back? Do you love expecting something in return? Husbands, why are you cleaning the kitchen? <clears throat> I asked my wife what a good illustration was for women. And I was like, why do wives, like, like what's something wives do, you know, and they expect something in return? And she didn't mean this, like, to be an indictment on me. But she was like, I really can't think of anything. So apparently, like... You, it might have to do with the fact that I've just been this really like lame husband and father for the past four weeks. So women, just take your pass or hopefully the Holy Spirit will hit you with it. God loved us with forbearance. Time and time again, we missed it. And time and time, and time, and time again, we ran back to our sin and our brokenness. And time and time again, God loved us. He didn't extend us favor in one shot. If he did, this would be a much smaller book that would end in about Genesis 3. God didn't give us one shot. So when I go to the gas station and help someone who gives me a story about their family put gas in their tank, and then I see them drive to the liquor store, have I already determined that I'm not going to help anyone else because I helped someone and I gave them one shot? Because God loves with forbearance. Do you give people as many chances as God gave you? 
And then finally, God loves us with an expected outcome. That we would enter into his family and act like we were in his family. The Great Commission is not a complicated mission statement. There's a lot more complicated theology in this book, and the Great Commission is not complicated. And if you ever went to summer camp, you heard some skit about Jesus showing up while the house wasn't clean. And I would just ask you, when you read this, if you and Jesus had a conversation about it, when you left, what would the conversation look like? And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's live out our faith with expectation because we know that God saves so that his glory would be displayed to his people, through his people, and in his people for all time. We're going to take communion, which is such a beautiful way, after using the lunchroom analogy, a beautiful way for us to consider others better than ourselves, consider where our hearts are before God, consider where our hearts are to the people that he has created in his image. And so I'm going to pray for us, and if, if the guys would go ahead and prepare to serve communion, then Brad will come up and, and usher us in taking it. Father, as we come to the table of communion, I pray that we would recognize that we don't come because we deserve to be there. I, I think we, we get that. I pray we would also recognize that only those that you have called to yourself, that have responded to the gospel, are welcome to be there. This is a family meal. It's not just to show up and come get it. It is for your family because in communion you put on display to the onlooking world the glory of your son who laid down his life for all who would trust in him. Father, may we not just remember that, but may we remember all that we were called to through that sacrifice. Make us here at Crosspoint a people for the peoples. A, a, a little outpost of heaven, a a, a group that is for the nations. And that does not mean that we have to fly across an ocean. As soon as we walk out of double doors into a little bit of heat and humi humidity, we are surrounded by the very people created in your image that we must remind ourselves not to write off, but to love as you loved. I pray that you would do that in, in Christ's name. Amen.